1: Over the last four months, ever since the horrific attacks on October the 7th, the families of more than 130 hostages have become more and more desperate and ragingly angry. (laughs) A fortnight ago, in a committee room inside the Israeli parliament, A group of furious families broke through security and stormed a parliamentary meeting. One man shouts, I will not let go, and I will pursue you all until you cooperate with us. The families around him chant now and thump the table. They've had enough of waiting.
0: We have decided to escalate because we are running out of time and they're not listening. So we're we're screaming a lot more. We're, We're stopping being nice.
1: The families want a deal that would release the hostages. And they aren't the only ones. The American Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is currently touring the capitals of the Middle East, trying to advance the talks.
0: He'll press for that proposed ceasefire deal recently drafted between the CIA, officials from Israel, Qatar and Egypt. This blueprint calls to pause fighting for six weeks and arrange a hostage release between the Israelis and Hamas.
1: But the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, won't be persuaded. He's demanding a total victory over Hamas and warned on Monday that the war could take months. How is that going down in Israel? With many of the hostages' families now joining the clamour of protests calling for Netanyahu to go, is he now the obstacle to peace? And who in his own government could lead to his downfall? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, how the Israeli hostages could topple Netanyahu.
0: My name is Anshul Pfeffer and I report for The Times from Israel.
1: Anshul, at the moment in Tel Aviv, in Hostages Square, if you were to walk by, you'd see quite a bizarre and striking an unsettling sight. A near constant vigil next to pictures of the killed or kidnapped, as this has become a gathering place. This is the plaza in front of the Tel Aviv Art Museum, but people here now call this place Hostage Square. Just describe what it looks like at the moment.
0: Well, there's a, an exhibit that's been there now for three months of a very long table with set for a festive meal, which to most Israelis, to most Jews, immediately looks like a Shabbat dinner waiting for a family to sit down uh, around the table and empty seats uh, with pictures of the 136 hostages still in Gaza on those seats. And besides its centrality in Tel Aviv, one, one other reason that it's been chosen to be the hostages square is that it's also opposite uh, the defence ministry compound, which is where most of uh, the cabinet meetings are being held basically since the beginning of the war. So it's also a place where ministers and senior officials pass on their way into the compound. So there's that sort of juxtaposition between the families of, of the hostages, those who are supporting the families, and uh, the various officials and ministers who are dealing with the situation are supposed to be dealing with the situation, and will have to make the decisions at some point.
1: And give us a sense of when you go past it, how does it feel?
0: I think the feeling, more than anything else, is that this is an issue which the, the families and the people who are supporting them are, at some point, struggling to keep in the public conscious because there's a war. The war is not just about. The hostages the war is is a war between israel and hamas is going on in gaza there are other fronts where tensions are are arising the families are trying so hard to keep the issue of of the hostages of their loved ones who have been now by now for uh, almost four months in, in in gaza the government should do everything they can do to bring them back home it's so so many days too too many days that they're there. And we hope uh, it will come back uh, very soon because every day there is uh, hell for them. The most important thing is to keep this issue alive, and you feel that you really feel this sort of almost desperate attempt to keep the issue at the forefront there. And I think that it's just, I would say I think for many Israelis, this has become the biggest issue, and I think that's their success—the feeling that this war can't end unless all the hostages come home.
1: financial part of their campaign to make sure that that's what politicians are thinking, that politicians are remembering the hostages and the way that they conduct the war, part of that spilled over into a committee meeting at the Knesset. Just describe what happened.
0: Well, there was a committee meeting and they sent in as many people as they could into the committee room to start talking about their, uh, about their loved ones. At one point, it became quite noisy, and there was almost, they were almost evicted from it. At some point, the the committee chair just adjourned the meeting. And it was kind of a very striking event because committee meetings are usually very sleepy things, or even if they do get a bit angry, it's politicians shouting at each other. But then you have. All these relatives who are going, who, who are there, and nobody can say anything to them, really, because you know, they're they're going through hell while waiting for any news from their loved ones. But the fact that it kind of comes, it, it's become a political issue. I think is really what what we should be looking at here: the way in which the government is is under so much pressure, and this is sort of converging with other protests against the government: protests to remove the government, to remove Benjamin Netanyahu, protests to end the war. It's important for me to be here to demand a ceasefire now and a political solution now, and to convey our voices and to shout as loud as we can. And also the families themselves aren't one group. We're talking here about uh, the 250 people were taken taken hostage. The families represent different views in Israeli politics and Israeli society. So you Mm. also have different groups of families saying different things and trying to urge the government to do different things.
1: And how is the government responding to the families? Because, you know, you'd imagine there'd be a lot of sympathy there is across Israel. But the tone from the government has sometimes been a bit surprising.
0: Well, when you say the word the government in Israel, you're meaning different things right now because you have Netanyahu's original coalition, which is almost dominated by far-right parties. You have Netanyahu himself. And then you have the new part of the government, the part of the government which joined uh, following the Hamas attack on October 7, Benny Gantz's centrist party, mm. uh, who have a different, uh, you know, very different policies and strike a very different tone. As always, and especially at this time, it's important that we remember that Israeli Arab citizens are an integral part of Israeli society. October 7th, ...was a dark day for all Israeli citizens. And each of these groups are taking very different approaches... ...to the hostage uh, situation. There's some of them, you know, mainly on the far right... Who, ...who think that the hostage issue shouldn't be a priority... ...and the main priority should be continuing uh, the war against Hamas full force... ...and, and you know, not taking the hostage issue too much into consideration. And then you have on the other side of the government that if there is a possibility to reach an agreement to release all the hostages, then Israel should agree to a a ceasefire, at least a temporary ceasefire, and take that opportunity to have so these people can get out of Gaza. The official number is 136, but at least 30 of them are already presumed to be dead, so they're, they're, they're not just incarcerated in Gaza. There's no communication between them and their families except the occasional uh, very cruel psychological warfare uh, videos that Hamas put out. But these are people whose life is is in danger. Some of them were already wounded when they were snatched on October 7, and who knows what kind of treatment they've had since then. There are horrendous stories of of young women amongst the hostages being sexually assaulted. So there's an urgency there. In somehow securing their release, and uh, that is something that some parts of the Israeli government are responding to. and other parts of the Israeli government would prefer not to have to uh, to deal with.
1: What have politicians said in particular about about the hostage families?
0: I mean, we've heard from different sides. You know, we've heard various ministers say, you know, we have to take, we have to listen to them, and we have to take them into consideration, and we even have to prioritise them. And we've heard other ministers saying. The, yeah, sort of hinting that they're not helping by being so vocal. And even Netanyahu himself, I can't remember exactly the words he used, but he seemed to be hinting that by their protest, they're actually helping Hamas's campaign. So once again, when you say the Israeli government, there isn't one Israeli government. There's a lot of different approaches. This is a very dysfunctional government. It's not doing a very good job of, uh, of running many things. Now, it wasn't doing a very good job before the war, and now more, even more with this new, you know, with these more pragmatic elements, you're hearing a very wide range of views from within the government, and in a way that I think reflects the, a, a wide range of views in Israeli society. I mean, everybody's saying that we need to do everything, but you, it's very different when people are saying, well, what we need to do is we need to you know, intensify attacks and force Hamas to let them go, Or those who are saying, well, we need to try and reach some kind of an agreement. And simply by military means, it's not going to happen.
1: Coming up, what does a divided Israeli government mean for the war? That's in just a moment. Just a reminder, this weekend, Times subscribers can catch the latest episode of Inside the Newsroom. It's our behind-the-scenes peek at what happens in the Times newsroom, and it's available to all subscribers on Apple Podcasts in the Stories of Our Times feed. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts to find out more. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Anshul, there's clearly a lot of pressure from elements within Israel, certainly from the hostage families, to call for a ceasefire so that they can try and secure the safety of, of these hostages. We've also had a lot of pressure from the international community on that front and there are talks at the moment that seem to be edging forward. What are you hearing? Where are we at with, with a potential ceasefire?
0: Well, there are a lot of players here. There are the so-called brokers. You've got Qatar. They have an interest in making Hamas look good. So they want to try and, and urge Hamas at least to do a humanitarian release and, and release the remaining women and uh, and elderly people who are still there. But You've got the Egyptians who want a much more comprehensive deal. They need the war to end because of the Red Sea situation, which has basically caused most of the world's major shipping companies not to use the Suez Canal anymore. So they're losing a lot of money because of this war. And then you've got the Americans, the Biden administration, who's pushing their their grand deal for peace and the diplomatic process towards the two-state solution. They've also realized that the only way is first of all to have a hostage agreement. That is something that Israelis need to be able to accept a ceasefire. So these different facilitators of a possible agreement have each have their own agenda. Then you have Hamas and Israel on either side. The
1: leader of Hamas has arrived in Cairo for talks with Egyptian officials amid hopes that Israel and the militant group may be inching closer to another truce. Uh, Meantime, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is back in the region. His fifth trip since October.
0: Now, Qatar, which has acted as a key mediator between Israel and Hamas, sounded optimistic, but a Hamas spokesperson reportedly said this isn't happening. And Israeli officials are apparently divided, saying any deal would be perceived as a concession to Hamas. You know, we're at a stage where there's an outline of a deal, but... There's no direct talks between Israel and Hamas. And it will probably take still uh, weeks until we, we know that there is a deal.
1: So it's still a way off. In the meantime, for Netanyahu, there is a lot of political pressure at home. As you said, the government is uh, a full spectrum. At the moment, it was uh, a very right-wing coalition with, under Netanyahu before October the 7th. It's more mixed now. Just talk us through, firstly, the pressures on him from the left and centre ground.
0: Well, Netanyahu had to bring in some more pragmatic ministers into his government, and Benny Gantz was offering to, to join the government after October seven. And Netanyahu, for the, despite the fact that he relies on the far right for his political survival, doesn't want to be sitting in a war cabinet with the far right ministers. He doesn't trust them. They don't have any experience on, the, on these matters. And they're not the kind of people that the international community is prepared to talk to. So for Netanyahu to have a war cabinet where he has some more... Uh, respectable members is a bonus. The war cabinet is a pretty small thing. There's five or six members there. None of the far right are in the war, or in the war cabinet. Gantt at the same time, is in a very uh, in a very difficult position. On the one hand, he feels responsibility to be in the war cabinet, so, so that decision making will be a bit more balanced. On the other hand, he is the one who expects to replace Netanyahu. All the polls show that he's the most popular candidate to replace Netanyahu, if elections were held now his party would receive twice the vote of Netanyahu's Likud. Netanyahu's obviously reading the polls and he knows this very well. So they're in this situation where his biggest rival and the man who with the best chances of replacing is sitting with him in the war cabinet and he wants him to stay for as long as possible in the war cabinet because the moment he leaves, it's basically the ball stops rolling towards an early election.
1: So Benny Gantz, a long-term rival to Netanyahu, according to the polls, would win tomorrow if there was an election, could effectively trigger one by walking away from this war cabinet.
0: It wouldn't trigger it automatically. Netanyahu could probably still have a majority, but certainly the pressure on parts of the coalition and the public pressure on Netanyahu to agree to holding an early election will double or or quadruple the moment uh, Gantz walks. I think we'd see much bigger protests. We'd see in the Knesset Israel's parliament various people within the Netanyahu coalition, within the remaining coalition, sort of wondering whether it's not the moment to hold early elections. We've already seen some hints from some Knesset members in the coalition saying that.
1: And one of those members is Gadi Eisenkot, a former military chief and a key War Cabinet minister.
0: It is necessary within a period of months to return the Israeli voter to the polls and hold elections in order to renew trust because right now there is no trust. As a democracy, the state of Israel needs to ask itself after such a serious event how do we continue from here with a leadership that has failed us miserably? And there's also the question, will the right wing stick with Netanyahu? Because the far-right have said that we have red lines, we will not accept any, any kind of deal with Hamas that includes a long ceasefire.
1: Israel's national security minister and controversial far-right leader, Itamar Bengavir, has threatened to bring down the Netanyahu government if it reaches what he calls a reckless hostage deal with Hamas.
0: And at some point, Netanyahu will probably have to go for that kind of a deal also because of the American pressure.
1: We're joined now by White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. From our perspective, a hostage deal that brings out the hostages, that gets a sustained pause in hostilities so that life-saving assistance can more easily get uh, to the Palestinian people, this is in the national security interests of the United States. And we're going to press for it relentlessly as the president has done. So it is a paramount priority for us. The Israeli government can answer whether it's a paramount priority for them.
0: And also because there is very real concern that without such a deal, more hostages will, will die. And, and who knows when when they'll be allowed to, allowed to emerge from Gaza.
1: That's so interesting. So there's the pressure on the left, but on the right, that could actually trigger an election if some of these very right-wing politicians pull out of the government with Netanyahu. Some of those ministers gathered at a conference recently, which led to some very surprising comments being made in public.
0: It is time to return home. It is time to return to the land of Israel. It's time to encourage emigration. It's time to impose the death penalty on terrorists. It's time to win. So the conference was essentially organized by a group of settlers, and the idea was that the next stage of the war should be building Israeli settlements in the Gaza Strip. There were Israeli settlements in the Gaza Strip until 2005, when Israel withdrew from Gaza. So as far as they're concerned, this is rebuilding the settlements in Gaza. Obviously, they don't see a future there for the the Gazans, for the Palestinian citizens there will be no Arabs in the Gaza Strip. They will go to Turkey, to Scotland, to Britain. I don't want to kill them. I want them out of Gaza. And we'll use different methods. One of them is not to give them any humanitarian aid, so the countries of the world will have pity on them and take them. They talk of a voluntary migration, but I'm not quite sure if anybody has any real idea how that happens. And Netanyahu himself has said this idea is not realistic. Obviously, the international community, the Americans, would do everything to to block it, and it would mean basically perpetuating the war in Gaza. So this is very much a messianic aspiration of a certain section of the far right in Israel, the messianic religious far right. It's very far from being a majority in Israel. The polls say maybe a quarter of, of Jewish Israelis, not even of all Israelis, w- are in favor of settling Gaza. But this is a small group which currently have a key position in the coalition, and some of the could members are also either affiliated with them or want to have their support in the future in primaries or elections and so on. So, this is why we saw a big chunk of, uh, of ministers and, and, and Knesset members courting this group.
1: And one of those who appeared at the conference was Israel's security minister, Itmar Ben Gavir. <laughs>
0: Today, everyone already understands that fleeing brings war, and if you don't want another 7th of October, you have to return home to control the territory.
1: Another senior figure at the conference was the finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich.
0: We are settling our land from width to length, controlling it and fighting terror always and bringing with God's help security to all of Israel. You know what the answer is. Without settlement, there is no security. It's an outlandish idea. It's not going to happen. There aren't aren't going to be Israeli settlements in Gaza. The Israeli army is already scaling down its military presence in Gaza. We're now at about a third of the scale of the deployment that the IDF had at the peak just a month or so ago in Gaza. So there is no no real way for Israel to settle Gaza. It's not going to happen. But the fact that they made this high-profile conference, the the fact that Netanyahu didn't reprimand them besides saying kind of weakly, yeah, it's not going to happen, it's not realistic, kind of shows where his government is stuck right now.
1: So for him, that's a genuine pressure. That could lead to an election if they pull their support because they don't think he's being supportive enough of their line. He's also under pressure from America to try and work towards a ceasefire. For Netanyahu, if there is an election tomorrow, if it's triggered by the right or by the pressure from the left, there's also the added pressure of him as a character and what might happen to him after an election. You've written the book on, on Netanyahu. Just explain w- what those extra pressures will be.
0: Well, for a start, Netanyahu is not somebody who is capable of relinquishing office. He's, he's Israel's longest serving prime minister. He intends to remain prime minister. He, he can't conceive of Israel. Uh, and of himself not, but not being Israel's leader. And he believes that this is something that he can still achieve despite the fact that ever since October 7th, he's been at the very bottom in the polls and there's no sign of him reviving his, uh, his political fortunes. But he still believes that he can. There's, then, then there's the more immediate threat of, of his court case, which is ongoing. For quite a long time, quite a few
1: years now, the prime minister has been facing all sorts of investigations and charges of corruption, uh, involvement in media coverage and so on and so forth. Legal proceedings, which had been frozen in the aftermath of October 7th, are being restarted. And so there is now increased scrutiny on the prime minister and on his history.
0: He does feel that it'll be more difficult for him to defend himself from a possible even jail sentence if he's no longer prime minister. And I think for Netanyahu, there's, a, there's another very important aspect. He's someone who's very aware of the verdict of history. I think he still thinks that he can somehow turn things around and not be remembered for the terrible failure of this war and what happened on October 7, but some kind of incredible Israeli victory at the end that will change how he's seen uh, by history. I think he's still... As ridiculous as it may sound, he's trying to grasp that.
1: That's so interesting. It explains a lot about his approach to, to the war at the moment. If he does end up losing power, if there is an election, what would that mean for for the war and what, what happens next?
0: First of all, there won't be a different government overnight. It'll probably take a few months until an election is held and a new government is is formed So, that, and the war will take its course until then i think the real issue with the new government is being able to talk about what happens next because currently with a government which has such contradicting positions between people who want to build israeli settlements in gaza and people who want gaza to be run by the palestinians and 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 rebuild the Palestinian authority in gaza and and perhaps even go from that to a diplomatic process or a two-state solution the disparity is so huge that this government can't really have any real conversation about, about that strategy. So the real change, I think, with a new government is to have a government where there is some level of cohesiveness which will at least allow the conversation to be held and some kind of strategy to be formulated. But right now, Israel doesn't have a real strategy for what happens next in Gaza.
1: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, writer for The Times, Anshul Pfeffer. You can read more of Anshul's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Sam Chantrasak and Priyanka Dilardia. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you want to hear more about the Israel-Hamas war... Do listen back to some of our previous episodes, particularly the one from last Friday where we heard from the Times journalist Amal Hellas from Inside Gaza. She gives an extraordinary account of what she and her family have gone through over the last three months. I can't recommend it enough. We'll put a link to it in the episode notes. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. only from rustolium